Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Last week, we spent many hours watching a lot of powerful old white men, Republican senators who want to confirm a Supreme Court nominee who lies under oath and who also shouts and sneers and cries during his confirmation hearing. But there are other people in politics in the United States, people who didn't go to elite private schools, whose families didn't belong to country clubs, people who didn't get into Yale and people whose politics are different from Brett Kavanaugh's. Some of them are featured in a new book on the rise of a new radical majority. The author is D.D. Guttenplan. He was the nation's lead reporter during the 2016 election. He traveled all over the United States. We spoke with him many times on this podcast about many places he'd been from Mississippi to Montana. He's the author of several books, the new one, it's a terrific one, is titled The Next Republic. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Well, of all the people you wrote about, who do you think provides the sharpest contrast, the most illuminating alternative to Lindsey Graham and Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch? Well, there are two people who come to mind immediately, and you'll, you'll see why two of them come to mind. The, f- the first one is Chukwe Antar Lumumba who's the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, and who therefore, as an African-American Southerner, couldn't be more different (laughs) from Lindsey Graham. And not just because he looks different, but because his whole life has been based on adherence to political principle and to struggle. He's the son of the former mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, who was himself a longtime black nationalist, lawyer, who works for Tupac Shakur and many other you know, African-American artists and activists who faced long prison sentences. And that's the, that's the household that uh, Antar, as everybody calls him, that's his middle name, grew up in. And so he, he has put forward a politics in Jackson that's about empowerment, it's about black power, but it's about black power not as a separatist cause, but as a part of a larger struggle. And I thought that was really important. So that, that was one answer, and that came immediately to mind. But in some ways, the, the anti-those people, and also the anti-Brett Kavanaugh, is the person who's the subject of the last chapter in the book, and that's Zephyr Teachout. Partly because she, she like Antar Lumumba, is a lawyer, and also, like him and unlike them, has devoted her life and her legal career to helping people who, who the odds are stacked against. But also because her whole politics is about a critique of the corporate power that underlies and underlines and underwrites their politics. And, of course, because she's always been a very visible, active, vocal woman in politics. So if I had to put together an ideal team to take on the three of them in any form you like, I would put those two on my side. I opened by talking about the horrible old white men we saw last week on the Republican side of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Of course, there's another old white man in American politics, a Democratic Socialist who ran for president two years ago. Bernie was his name. And for decades, 
us older leftists had been told just how far outside the mainstream we and people like Bernie were. And then 2016 came along. I certainly wasn't prepared for what happened in the Democratic primaries. Uh, were you? No, I don't think anybody was prepared. I mean, I talk about it in the beginning of the book, this moment which for me happened in the gym in uh, New Hampshire on the night of the New Hampshire primary, which, of course, Bernie won. I set out not to cover the race as a horse race because, uh, as I told Katrina Vanden Heuvel, my editor at The Nation, I thought it was going to be a boring campaign, and I was completely wrong about that. Uh, But I did also say that I thought that it would be worth sending somebody to pay attention to the people and the movements and what people were talking about outside the sort of cable news channels and that was that was really my assignment and it turned out that that's where the that's where the campaign ended up moving to anyway but in this gym in in new hampshire i i wasn't there mainly to cover bernie although i i vote in vermont so i've been voting for bernie for a long time i was there to see what bernie's people and who bernie's people were and it was for me a kind of moment of astonishment because i i looked around the gym and there were so many of us. Now, it's true that it was a Bernie Sanders rally, and it was in New Hampshire. So it was whiter than what you would consider most pre- progressive crowds to be. But given that, it was incredibly diverse. You had men in union jackets. You had grandmothers in tie-dyed T-shirts. You had young people in you know, their, school, uh, their school sports team shirts. You had people of all ages in Bernie T-shirts. And we were all looking at each other like, wow, I thought I was the only one. Mm. The media has been telling us for so long that we're marginal. And, I mean, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, they don't even bother to call us communists anymore. <laughs> but, you know, the, the idea that in a country where liberal is a dirty word or a term of opprobrium that nobody will own up to, to say that you're actually not a liberal because you're further to the left than liberals... He felt ready to become a pariah, and instead, it turns out that we were where politics was going, and that was a revelation to me. And in a way, the book flows out of that revelation. It was it was to say, well, what if these politics were really taken seriously? You know, leaving aside the question of Bernie himself, what if the things that that underpin his vision, that education and health care and a place to live are, are human rights and should be guaranteed for everyone. What if those things were taken seriously? What would that mean to our politics? How could we get there? And where does that kind of majoritarian or left populist, however one you want to describe it, where does that politics come from in our history? Because I, I discovered pretty quickly that it wasn't something completely new. It was something rather that had been repressed and suppressed and it was breaking out. And I wanted to look at both where it was breaking out and where it had been before. You open your new book, The Next Republic, with a chapter on winning under conditions of extreme adversity. A great topic and certainly an urgent one for us right now. Tell us about that. So the book is um, six chapters that are portraits of activists whom ideally most of your listeners wouldn't have heard very much about. So it's not a port, they're not portraits of Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or people like that. They're portraits of people who I think are doing not just interesting but essential work, but who, who aren't yet, yet so well known. And, so, and also who represent 
one piece or another of what I consider to be this majority, emerging majority coalition. And the first chapter, and it definitely has to be the first chapter, is about Jane McAlevey, who's a union organizer and labor activist and author. And Jane is an incredibly compelling figure for lots of reasons, but I suppose the main one is because she has absolutely no tolerance for bullshit. So I was I begin the chapter by talking about a conversation I had with her at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia where I was waxing on about how we were going to have to push Hillary Clinton to the left in the in the incoming Clinton administration that at that point we all assumed we were about to have and she just interrupted me and said she hasn't closed the deal and I said what do you mean and she said oh, I've been working organizing nurses in hospitals so I've been talking to women about politics for weeks and the women I've been talking to, a lot of them are the kind of suburban women whom Hillary is clearly banking on to carry her to victory, and she hasn't closed the deal with them. And I was like, well, what do you mean? How could that be? And so she laid out to me what she thought was happening, which turned out to be absolutely right, and also her own work, which was the work of organizing from the ground up in conditions of extreme adversity union campaigns in sometimes in, in right-to-work states and winning again and again and again. In Nevada, she put together this hospital workers union that won incredible contracts and that Nevada is a right-to-work state. So we look around and we see Trump and Pence and Kavanaugh and even without Kavanaugh, we, you know, we, see, we see Gorsuch and we think it's just hopeless. And yet Jane is somebody who goes into situations again and again and again that you and I might consider hopeless, and she just goes in and gets it done. And not only that, she's very methodical about how she gets it done and how to win under those conditions and what you have to do and how you have to listen to people and talk to people and put together a program of action. And I just thought this is exactly what people need to know about. One of the key themes of your book is that even though Trump's victory in 2016 was a horrifying wake-up call, now we should be looking forward rather than backward. What do you think are the most promising directions where we should be looking right now? What did people that you talked to suggest about where to focus our energy and our political work now? Well, I think we have to be looking in lots of different directions at once. I mean, that's the thing. If you have endless money behind you, you can assemble a coalition of the bought and of those in whose interests it is to defend privilege. If you're trying to take that on, then, and that's why the word majority is in the subtitle of the book, you have to put together a majority coalition. Jane said something really important to me. She said, if you give up organizing in, in large numbers, you give up the only weapon that ordinary working people have, which is our, which is our numbers, our preponderance of numbers. Great. So, you know, how do we get to a majority? Well, you have to have labor. That's what that chapter is about. But you also have to have the environmental movement and climate justice. And you have to have racial justice. And you have to have immigrant rights. And all of these fights are actually happening. So the, the, the key is to both attend to these fights that are happening near you, wherever you are, and to see how do they fit together and how do we get the people who are involved in them to be aware of and supportive of each other. I mean... You know, if there's a cardinal virtue for the left, it has to be solidarity. For a historian, the biggest question about our politics over the last 75 years probably is, 
whatever happened to the New Deal? What happened to the Roosevelt Republic? In the 30s and 40s, it really changed what Americans thought government could do. I know that's one of the questions you take up in your book, The Next Republic. Well, it's it's not just one of the questions. It's the reason that the chapter about the Roosevelt Republic is the longest chapter in the book. Okay. And, and part of that is because, you know, if you report presidential campaigns, as I just did, you spend a lot of time in Ohio because Ohio is, you know, a battleground state. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed traveling around Ohio was I would see these things that were like, they were like ruins of a, of a alien civilization. I'd be walking down a street in Akron, Ohio, and I'd see this incredible building with beautiful architecture, pillars and pilasters, and I'd walk inside and there'd be murals on the wall, and it was a post office. Or, you know, a public library in Cleveland with these incredible murals of the building of the bridge over the Ohio River. And you think, well, what is it? What is the civilization that built this stuff? And you realize the civilization that built this stuff was the New Deal. And all over America, particularly in the places where we once had, you know, an industrial heartland, you see these relics of the New Deal and the relics of a time when First of all, ordinary people felt the government was on their side and belonged to them. And secondly, when the government felt it was its job to guarantee people basic rights. And so it became an, an obsession with me to figure out, well, what happened to that? How did it, how was it dissolved? And the answer to that is complicated, which is why the chapter is long. But if I had to simplify it, I would say it dissolved in two, in two waves. One was the wave of neoliberal economics, which basically sold everybody on the con that a federal government budget is like your household budget, and therefore that you have to cut spending to equal income at all times under all conditions, uh, which is insane. Uh, and the second was uh, the Red Scare. And what, what effect that had the fact that the Democratic Party and so many labor unions signed up to the Red Scare and purged so many of their most dedicated activists in the 40s and 50s, and that hollowing out of the kind of movement for justice in America, so that it, it basically stayed buried until it was woken in the, in the fight for racial justice, but that was only in the South. You know, you had people who had been red-baited out of unions and suddenly they could come back into politics through civil rights. But that didn't happen in places like Ohio or Western Pennsylvania or West Virginia. The purge, the political purge in those areas stayed permanent. You quote Naomi Klein in your introduction saying, no is not enough. We also need to lay out our yes. What does that mean? Well, that struck me as really important. It really resonated with me because if you, if you look at all the millions of mostly women who came out with their pink hats when Trump was inaugurated, they knew and we know what we're against. You know, we're against Trump and Trumpism. And this, you have this amorphous thing called the resistance. But the resistance isn't going to get us to the next republic. Being against, being in opposition is not going to be enough. We have to say what we're for, not just what we're against. And we have to say what we're for in a way that unites all of these different strands of struggle. When things look dark, it's good to be reminded of what's possible. And that's exactly what D.D. Guttenplan does in his new book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. It's out now from Seven Stories Press. Don, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. 
Thanks for having me, John. Take care. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.